0: Battleship 57, BB-57, 57, was launched at Camden, New Jersey, June 7, 1941, and commissioned March 20, 1942. She headed out on her first war cruise August 16, 1942, three years to the day before Japan was to surrender. It was the wife of Governor Harlan Bushfield who broke the traditional bottle of champagne across the bow of BB-57 and christened her the USS South Dakota, then whispered a prayer of Godspeed for the men who were to serve aboard her. It was a prayer that was answered. For while men were to die aboard the South Dakota, she took a toll never before reckoned by a battle wagon. In October of 1942, during the Battle of Santa Cruz, she downed 32 Japanese planes while performing her prime task of defending the carrier Enterprise. This was the first time in naval history a battleship had been given such a mission, and the South Dakota proved the wisdom of the tactic. She saved the Enterprise, sorely needed during these first months of the war, which saw the Navy fighting back from the tremendous losses to the fleet at Pearl Harbor. In winning her first battle star at Santa Cruz, she also suffered her first wound. 500-pound aerial bomb dropped by a Japanese dive bomber. The bomb landed atop a main 16-inch battery turret and hardly nicked the armor plate, but the screaming shrapnel dealt Captain Gatch a painful wound which almost took the life of this gallant officer. When asked why he had not hit the deck when he saw the Jap plane coming, Gatch answered, I considered it beneath the dignity of a captain of an American battleship to flop for a Japanese bomb. Captain Gatz received the Navy Cross for his engagement, and after a recuperative period was reassigned to his ship, which he led to even more glory. (laughs) By the Battle of Guadalcanal, the Japs had reported on two different occasions that they had sunk the South Dakota. For security reasons, she was thereafter referred to as Battleship X, and as such is remembered by many. In fact, BB-57 probably had more recognizable names than any other battle wagon in history. Her numerical designation, USS South Dakota, (Sodak), Battleship X, and Old Nameless, a name given to her by Sidney Shallot in his wartime book of that title, in which he could not refer to the ship by any positive identifying name or number. All of these names belong to this great lady. In all... She officially accounted for 64 planes, participated in nine shore bombardments, and earned 14 battle stars for participating in every major naval battle in the Pacific. In all, the ship steamed 246,970 miles from Camden to Tokyo Bay, where she was at anchor while final surrender negotiations were going on on board the neighboring USS Missouri.
1: Would you go through the Battle of Santa Cruz Island with me as you remember it and tell it to? I
2: I do remember that it was an experience which was uh, um, unprecedented for everybody on that ship because even though uh, there were many of us on there who were new to the Navy, I don't think that there was any man on there, officer or a man who had actually been in action against the enemy before. this was uh, still very early in World War II. The dates, I think, were about October 1942. Our Navy at that time was uh, really fighting a defensive war against the Japanese because the Japanese had gotten the upper hand on the United States Navy at, in, in the first years of the war. In this particular battle, there were two aircraft carriers, if I remember correctly. Um, it was our ship, the, the South Dakota, and our ship was the first uh, battleship to become involved in one of these uh, battles that they called an air-sea battle. Up until then, battleships had always been fighting other surface ships, but here it was uh, confined exclusively to uh, maybe three operational carriers in the Pacific at that time. It was the Enterprise, the Hornet, uh, and the Wasp. The Saratoga had caught a fish, as the phrase used to go, had had gotten a torpedo, and it was in uh, Pearl Harbor in a dry dock and uh, the first of the Long Island-class carriers, which were just little converted uh, freighters, uh, was just uh, beginning uh, to arrive in the Pacific. Matter of fact, I saw the first Long Island-class carrier arrive in Noumea, New Caledonia, with a shipment of about 40 American airplanes. That, that was the first, they call them ferry carriers, F-E-R-R-Y, they ferried airplanes out to the advanced lines. And except for that, that was the only uh, carrier they had out there, the, so that the, the carriers with the airplanes became sort of like the cavalry used to be in the Army. It was your intelligence. It was your scouting force. Now, without the airplanes, well, you were you were pretty helpless. You didn't know what the enemy was doing. So when we were down, that is when the United States Navy was down to so few uh, carriers, uh, we were in a precarious condition. And in this battle, our carriers were shooting off airplanes, attacking their uh, carriers and they were doing the same thing to us. The South Dakota, along with uh, a couple of cruisers and some destroyers, had as a job to try to shoot these enemy airplanes down and protect the uh, carrier. Well, I was on the starboard side, on the uh, uh, right up in the uh, forward part of the ship, and I had the 20 millimeter guns that extended down that starboard side. And the way you were organized, uh, you had a pair of head, uh, head telephones, and you talked to a person at each station uh, who uh, let's say had four guns or two guns under their control and it was my job to uh, make sure that the batteries opened fire at the correct time that they were on the right targets that if there are any casualties that people were replaced, that the ammunition continued to flow correctly that we were carrying out our
1: part of the of the battle plan when these planes came in mr shriver did you uh could you say that for a fact that your batteries were responsible for any definite portion of that 32 that the ship shot down that day? But everybody always claimed,
2: you know, that they shot down this one or that one or the other one, and uh, frankly I don't think anybody ever really could prove those things. There were there were some cases, the last plane that came in, or the next to last plane that came in, I was firmly convinced was shot down by a battery in the, a couple of the guns in the 8th Division, which I was in charge of. You have to r- realize that it's practically impossible to prove that because as a ship, a plane comes diving in on a ship like the South Dakota, there'd be anywhere from 20 to 50 guns open up on that one plane. Now, who's to say which one actually shot it down? At the very moment that you might have the uh, target, the enemy aircraft in your sights and shoot, uh, another fellow might be just on the target at the same time. As a matter of fact, you both might have shot it down. And there were so many planes being shot down so fast that day, they were falling all around that uh, I don't really think anybody worried too much about who shot down what. They just wanted to shoot down the planes and make sure they didn't get shot down yourself. That was the principal preoccupation everybody had. uh, How do you feel that they performed? Well, they did terrifically well, terrifically well. We had a great gunner there, a fellow named Chatelaine, they subsequently named a a destroyer after him. And uh, the crew, they they couldn't have done better. They did a great job. I think that uh, the captain was very pleased, Gatch. These fellows were right out in the open. Uh, There was no armor plate, for example, between them and enemy fire or enemy shrapnel. Usually on a big ship, a capital ship, a battleship, a large proportion of the people on board are inside the ship. The men in one of those big 16-inch turrets are inside the turret. And they're protected by four, five, six, eight, ten inches of grade A armor plate. So there for example, in the Battle of uh, Santa Cruz, this one we're talking about, a bomb did land right on the top of the number two turret. Uh, well, there are a lot of guys in that turret. They hardly knew the bomb had landed on the turret. But up there in the open, uh, everybody knew it had been land- uh, it landed because uh, three or four fellows got killed by that bomb. So the fellows in the anti-aircraft divisions were running around with nothing on, but they're, you know... Uh, close and uh, you're in a big battle with uh, people shooting 8 inch and 16 inch shells around and all you're doing is running around in the open it's not exactly as if you were on the inside Uh, so uh, I think they had a terrific amount of courage and they did damn well I was uh, uh, on on the starboard side so that when the bomb exploded the shrapnel which came aft came aft but was outboard of me so guys in my division were killed uh, Fellows, that weren't any further than, uh, let's say, 10 yards, 15 yards from me. But the blast couldn't get around the corner to where I was, so I unfortunately was not killed. Bull Halsey took command of the South Pacific Fleet. Everybody's walking around in white uniforms, and it was so-called spit and polish, and you didn't have your tie on at the right time while you were in trouble, and so on. And Halsey's told everybody, just take their ties off. Uh, as a matter of fact, he said you could get rid of the white uniforms, and he started wearing cocky uniforms all day long. And the next thing you know, they'd cut the sleeves off halfway down, and and people were 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 comfortable in that hot tropical climate, and they began to figure think about how to fight rather than how you looked or how the ship looked. Uh, sometimes people complained that the South Dakota was a messy-looking ship; wasn't always painted up perfectly, and some uh, old-line fellows would sometimes get on there and say. See, this is a far cry from the kind of a Navy ship that I've been accustomed to seeing. Well, it was a far cry. Uh, I had been out on the USS Arkansas in 1940, and uh, the USS Arkansas at that time, i bet you had paint on it three inches thick. You'd put on one coat, and then you'd put on another coat, and everything was always just perfection. Externally, it looked beautiful. Uh, but we found out uh, to our dismay, uh, for example, in the Battle of... Of guadalcanal that that paint that thick paint can catch on fire and can kill you and as a matter of fact uh, it can even the the fire can go through bulkheads which are closed watertight bulkheads for example if you have a fire in one compartment and uh, you have a completely watertight armor-proof bulkhead between that compartment and the next compartment the heat in the compartment where the fire is burning can ignite the paint on the other side of the bulkhead. And in that way, the fire can spread from compartment to compartment, simply by heat and not by any flame. So I'll never forget in the the New York Navy Yard that we scraped every bit of paint off of that ship. We scraped everything right off the floor. We took up every uh, piece of uh, like rugs and stuff like that that were on the floor. And a lot of people said that this was a very bad looking uh, U.S. Navy ship. But captain gatch was never worried about how how it looked all he was interested in was whether it would fight effectively and he transmitted that uh, spirit and concentration on the fighting ability of the south dakota to everybody in it uh, so that they didn't care about anything except that
1: and it, you know, i'll tell you when you're in a battle that's the only thing that makes any difference that's true, sir. Uh, Mr. Schreiber, going back to the Battle of Santa Cruz, how many men did you lose in your uh, in your commander? Um, practically none. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think that uh,
2: that my own division, the Eighth Division, uh, suffered most of the casualties. I don't really know that anybody was hurt except in the Eighth Division. I suppose the records, the Navy records, would show what that is. But I, the, the largest portion of the fellows who were wounded or killed in the
1: in that particular battle were uh, in the anti-aircraft division that I had charge of. Well, you didn't get much of a rest after the... See, they hit you, what, two or three times that day, two or three different waves of uh, Jap planes. planes. I can't remember how many there were. It it was more than one. I mean, they came back at you. Oh, yes. But just about two, two and a half weeks later, you were involved in the Second Battle of Savo Island, and uh, in that one, you did sustain a lot of hits, didn't you? Uh, yes, I think that, um, that we sustained more
2: uh, hits by major caliber projectiles in that battle than any battleship has ever taken. I don't know whether this is accurate or not, but I was told uh, the morning after that battle, it was in the, well, in the morning of the 15th of November, uh, one of the older uh, regular Navy officers on board told me that that battle was the first time that the United States capital ship, that's a battleship, a capital ship, had fought, had actually fired its guns at an enemy ship since the War of 1812. Uh, And uh, on that night, I think we were struck something like 100 to 150 times by major caliber projectiles. That means a a shell that's bigger than 8 inches or bigger, an 8-inch shell, 10-inch shell, 12-inch shell, 14-inch shell, 16-inch shells, those were major
1: caliber projectiles, and we were hit over 100 times by those shells. Captain Gatch hoped to be the first one to fire his guns and the Admiral says fire at will and uh, so Captain Gatch turned to give the order to fire commence firing and the Admiral's flagship loosed at the first blast and uh, the Captain Gatch's comment was a wry fellow the Admiral. I'll say I was not close enough to the captain
2: to hear any such comments, <laughs> so I can't vouch for whether or <laughs> what they
1: were. After the uh, the sample, but the
2: admiral uh, was on our ship that night, Admiral Admiral Lee. He was he was on the South Dakota, wasn't uh, He was on the South Dakota, wasn't he? On the South Dakota the night of that action, I think he was. So that the Admiral had given the order, you mean, but the South Dakota's guns fired first? Is that what you were saying? Uh, no,
1: the, uh, actually, the Admiral's flagship... Uh, was on the
2: Washington that night?
1: I think he was, sir, at least according to uh, Well, there, the book. he may have changed that. Well, I'm sure the book is right. It probably changed,
2: because I know he came on the South Dakota originally. I'll never forget when he came on board, as a matter of fact. We were uh, just getting ready to go to the South Pacific, and none of us knew that, uh, but that's uh, what it ultimately turned out to be. And this Admiral came walking down the dock, I remember just if it was 20 minutes ago, and I'd never even seen an Admiral, there hadn't been any on the South Dakota. And uh, he had on just a cocky uniform, and he came on and uh, came on the deck and went up the Admiral's quarters. And he hadn't been on there, it seemed to me, 20 minutes, and we picked up and left. And I think the reason that he came on so quietly was that uh, they didn't want, the Navy didn't want uh, people in Philadelphia to be uh, gossiping about why there was an admiral on board and he came on just by himself with one aide I think and maybe one other person usually an admiral has quite a staff he came on just by himself and then he got this name Chin Chin Lee where did he He's get that guy. name he got that out there in Guadalcanal but I can't remember exactly why he got that name
1: well, Mr. Shriver going back to uh, Savo did you uh, did you ever sustain a, a personal injury in, uh during the war or at least aboard Well, I picked up Dakota. a piece of that um, the shrapnel that was flying around that night. On the Savo that, or the Santa Cruz? Uh, no, at
2: Savo Island. Did you yeah, see but the it Purple Heart? No, because it didn't amount to anything. I mean, I got hit by a piece of shrapnel, and <laughs> I'll never forget it was so funny, because uh, when I got hit, suddenly I knew I was hit. Well, after all, you know, you, you get a, a piece of shrapnel, and you, it happened to hit me in the arm, and you start bleeding and uh, I'd seen so many Westerns I suppose as a kid I grabbed my arms You know, so they got me or my god I've been hit and I thought sure you know that I must have lost my arm or something and I started wiggling it around to see whether it worked all right of course it worked all right Uh, but it's funny how you can be uh, uh, shocked uh, just by being hit even if you're not hit in any uh, consequential way, it was just that you're in a battle, and suddenly you feel you're hurt, and naturally then you think you know you have practically
1: been killed. But uh, I wasn't. I wasn't hurt at all. I had just a little what they call flesh wound. <laughs> well, you, where is Savo Island exactly? While we're on the subject, it's a new one to me. Savo Island. Yeah. Is uh, a- Savo Island is a little island
2: uh, just north of Guadalcanal, and a little bit to the uh, east of Guadalcanal. And when you uh, but we were on the uh, the eastern side of, Guadal- uh, of Guadalcanal, steaming up the eastern side like this, you see, and you went north. And then if you wanted to come around the top of Guadalcanal and come down the, excuse me, we were steaming up the western side, and you come across the north and come down the eastern side, you had to pass through a channel between Savo Island and Guadalcanal. And the, that, that channel got a nickname too. They called it Iron Bottom, I think it was, Iron Bottom Channel, because so many ships got sunk in that channel. It was a very narrow channel. At nighttime, when we went through there, it was possible to see the outlines of Savo Island on the port side, if I remember correctly, almost at the same time as you could see the outline of Guadalcanal on the starboard side. My memory is it would be, you know, less than 20 miles wide, that channel. You have to understand that for a battleship to be in a channel like that, it's much more unusual, for example, than for a destroyer. A big capital ship never gets into constricted waters if it can possibly avoid it because the advantage of a capital ship in those days was that it could shoot projectiles a long distance, let's say 15, 20 miles. So if you're on a capital ship, what you want to do is to keep little ships as far away from you as you can and shoot them down before they can even get close enough to shoot at you. Therefore, you, you try to keep a capital ship away from constricted waters and away from the land because you never want to shoot, uh, give it, make it possible for people on the land to shoot at you when you get a capital ship, like a battleship like ours, in a channel as narrow as that, that's not good. You want to stay out of there. And that's why it was relatively unusual for a big ship like that to be in there. We've had cruisers. We had had cruisers in there before. We lost three
1: cruisers, but we lost three cruisers in there. I had a couple of friends went down in that channel. Do you recall, uh, Mr. Shriver, you said that over a hundred... major caliber shells had hit the South Dakota do you remember the extent of the major damage to the ship that these shells uh, severed a lot of the electrical
2: cables in the in these in the uh, South Dakota so that it was no longer possible to uh, handle the big guns automatically and electrically and it was because of these uh, injuries to the firing
1: installations of the ship that the South Dakota was sent back to the United States for overhaul and repair. Uh, is this where you left the uh, South Dakota then? was it No, I Navy stayed on and uh, after we got outfitted or refitted, I guess is the right word, at the Brooklyn Navy Yard,
2: the South Dakota went up to uh, Scapa Flow. and We operated in the North Atlantic with the British Home Fleet. I'd say six or eight months. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but uh, we were up there in the so-called Land of the Midnight Sun off Norway, and we were based at Scapa Flow, which is in the northern part of uh, Great Britain or the Scottish Islands there. That was the, the main base for the British home fleet. We used to operate with the big battleship called the Duke of York, and there was another big uh, British battleship up there. I can't remember the exact name of it offhand. Yep. No, we didn't get into any engagements. The, uh, they were continually trying to make forays, as they call it, along the coast there in Norway, in hopes that uh, one of those big uh, German ships, like the Bismarck, uh, would come out of uh, those fjords in Norway, where where they were uh, where they were hiding. It was the Von Turpitz and the Bismarck, if I remember correctly, were up in those fjords, and uh, there would be these scouting
1: efforts and and maneuvers people writing. Your staff was telling me a story earlier about. Uh, you were in San Francisco after the war when the South Dakota also yeah. put in, uh, was it San Francisco or San Diego?
2: No, the South Dakota came back and uh, Admiral and you Halsey over was there. on board, yeah. I had a great that time at, uh, yeah, this was after the war was over. And uh, the South Dakota was coming back and she was flying the flag of Admiral Halsey, the Commander-in-Chief of the Third Fleet. And San Francisco and California were all decked out, uh, and, you know, for the returning heroes, the war heroes. And I had gotten back, I guess, maybe a month before the South Dakota did. I was in uh, San Francisco visiting. And I thought, well, gosh, I ought to get out to my old ship and see some of my shipmates. And I made an application to go out. And I found out that there were no vessels being allowed to go out, that the returning ships were steaming in under the Golden Gate Bridge with fireboats squirting hoses and airplanes zooming around and all that. And they all shipping had been ruled off San Francisco Harbor. But... Uh, I managed to finagle my way onto a launch which was bringing the Governor of California out to greet Admiral Halsey. And there was the Governor of California, who at that time was Governor Warren, now Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice Warren. There was the Mayor of San Francisco, the Commandant of the Navy in the West Coast, the Commandant of the Army in the West Coast, uh, and one or two other dignitaries at that level. And I sneaked on the rear. I was a lieutenant in an old beaten-up Navy uniform, and I sort of hid in the hold. While, <laughs> while this snappy cruiser went out and came alongside the South Dakota. And they all got out and started up the accommodation ladder, and of course I was the last one to get out, being the most junior guy there. And I came up to the top, and uh, I'd never seen the South Dakota look so splendid. Uh, the whole uh, uh, commanding uh, staff of Admiral Halsey were all lined up there. Admiral Spruance was there. Everybody was in spit and polish. They were playing ruffles and flourishes. The Navy band was out there. And I came up over the side and I saluted the flag. And then I turned around to salute the officer of the deck, which is the procedure you follow. And there was one of my best friends who was the officer of the deck. And he nearly dropped his spyglass. You just have to carry a spyglass. And uh, I said, you know, hello. And he said, welcome aboard. And uh, so I was sort of a part of the official party. And I had to go down the lineup of uh, people. I was following along just after the next guy and the next thing I found myself shaking hands with Admiral Halsey <laughs> and uh, I looked at him and I didn't know what to say but you know it's like cliche in the Navy I said uh, Admiral Halsey I shook hands and I said my name is Shriver, Lieutenant Shriver, well done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you congratulated him. <laughs>
2: so I congratulate Admiral Halsey on the South Dakota it was re- to me it was really funny because <laughs> I hadn't seen you know y- when you're on a ship, like the, even like a South Dakota a big ship, you never see anybody like Admiral Halsey or Admiral Spruins. You get to see, uh, by accident maybe, some Admiral like that. I remember when we were in the uh, Navy Yard at Pearl Harbor at one time, we were in dry dock, and Admiral Nimitz came on board. He was Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet at that time. And uh, everybody nearly dropped dead because he just walked on just like anybody else, which was not customary in the Navy uh, prior to the wartime. He just came on like everybody else, and I was there, and I met him, and it was the... I guess he was the biggest, the highest-ranking admiral ever came on there, except uh, for halting But you don't see uh, many admirals when you're uh,
1: an Ensign or a lieutenant, junior grade in the Navy. Uh, do you recall what your personal reaction was, or did you have time to think of yourself at all? Well, my life never flashed before me, I can tell you that now. I'm glad it didn't. Uh, the, the
2: thing it, uh, to me was the... Uh, it really scared me the most was uh, uh, that very night uh, our ship had taken all these hits as I told you and the communications from the top of the ship that is from the this foremast was a great foremast and it had uh, lots of officers all the way up and down that who were in spotting positions and they were all hooked up by telephones and I was about a quarter of the way up that mast and all the communications were shot out and um, Part of our ship was on fire and it was the middle of the night, we had lost four destroyers there, there were, God, I'd seen men churned up in the waters, you know, and uh, there were all guys all around the place, uh, all shot to pieces and there was blood all over the place and uh, half of a person's body would be lying, you know, in the passageway and the executive officer, Commander Eulinger, uh, got me on the phones and he said, "Uh, Shriver, can you get up that foremast, there's an awful lot of people up on that foremast who are hurt. And also, uh, there are some uh, things burning up there that that disclose our position to an enemy. You see, if you're on fire at night, it's obviously very easy to see you. He said, can you get up that tower and uh, put those things that are on fire and help those guys that are either dead or dying up there? Well, let me tell you one place I did not want to go was up that tower. Uh, It was really horrible. Uh, Half the, you know, the ladder's going up. You'd be going up the ladder and half of the steps would be, uh, the rungs would be shot out. And there were these gaping holes that you couldn't see because it was midnight. You could just fall right down uh, through a hole and maybe go, you know, four or five decks down. what's more, it it stunk so, God, it smelled terrible. All these, uh, you know, blood and guts and skin and bones all over the place and in the middle of it you could hear these guys groaning and you really couldn't see them Uh, you could you could feel them and uh, i swear to god the last thing i ever wanted to do was go up that tower and he said could i go up there and i said sure i could go up there and i started up that tower i'll never forget that climb up that tower as long as i live you know you get your a very good friend up there you know lying there uh, shot with full of shrapnel and stuff all you could do would be to give the guy a shot of morphine but it was uh, really grisly. and then i got up there And here was this great big stack, the funnel. And sure enough, floating back over that funnel, there were these uh, pieces of flags, you know, signal flags, and they were all burning. And so the problem was to walk out to where these flag fragments were burning and grab them and throw them down so that they, they wouldn't any longer disclose our position. And it was really, to me, it was damn scary because you had to walk out there on a very little ledge and hold on to a wire and grab these flags and we were doing about 25 knots through the middle of the night and screaming and the wind you know going and all these people up there sick and i don't mean sick wounded and 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 they the people were screaming these men were screaming and the the blood and the stink and everything boy i really hated that so um, did you get the flag my life did not flash in front of my eyes but uh, uh wouldn't like to get many more assignments like that. Were you able to get out and get the flags? Oh yeah, we got the flags and got them down and then I came on back down. There really wasn't an awful lot you could do. I think we lost, we must have lost uh, 25 or 30 men up in that tower. And this Admiral that I'm telling you about, Charlie Linden could tell you a great deal about that. Several of his very good friends were killed in that tower. Some fine officers.
0: Battleship X was decommissioned January 31st, 1947 placed in reserve at the Philadelphia Naval Yard and remained there until scrapping operations began in 1962. As a physical entity, the USS South Dakota no longer exists. But in the heart of South Dakotans, and indeed in the hearts of all Americans whose freedom she helped to preserve, she can never die. She was the most highly decorated battle wagon in history and her place in history is secured thanks to those gallant men who served a border, fought a border, and yes, died a border. These recordings were
1: made in 1969, 50 years ago, 25 years after the action, actually. Sergeant Shriver, at that time, was actually the director of the Peace Corps. I'm John Michaels, and thank you for listening to Forum.